0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry, or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. My name is Jamin. If you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 21 through 26. Those are the verses that uh, Miss Lisa read for us before she prayed. If you're new here, my name's Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to welcome you. If you're uh, here watching online, thank you so much for Joining in, I'm going to start a little bit different uh, this morning because I want to welcome uh, and introduce to you some new members of Citizens Church. And so we've had uh, two uh, classes, two covenant membership classes, uh, and we have not yet got to kind of introduce those who went through those classes. And that's kind of one of our rhythms that was really disrupted through the last year. Uh, but we get to introduce you uh, to those new members and pray for them uh, this morning. In that, I don't want to miss uh, an opportunity just to. Um, just to see what God has done. So we're coming up on uh, a year since the pandemic started, or at least a year since it, all of this was pandemic-y for us, I guess, and so that's disrupted church in a lot of different ways, and disrupted a lot of things in life, and in the world, and yet uh, one of the things I have tried to, to, to be faithful to do is to demonstrate, and to see, and to turn our eyes towards all the ways that even in the midst of that crisis, and even in the midst of Things changing, how God has still moved through his church and how God has still worked through his people. And so that's, that's meant a lot of different things for us. That's meant the hundreds of people who've been in our classes, whether it's our Bible care classes or steps class or our soul care class, uh, the, the hundreds of children. That have still been discipled in that time by our next gen ministries. Uh, we launched a brand new ministry for young adults in that time, which is which is going really well under Tomarcus's leadership. Uh, we have uh, hundreds of people involved in our home groups right now. We've got new groups that start about every other month or so. Uh, you, because of your generosity, uh, since the pandemic started last March, uh, we have given away just under two hundred thousand dollars. Uh, 54,000 of that has been directly to people or organizations that have been impacted by COVID. My favorite is that since the pandemic started, we have baptized 29 people at Citizens Church. And then as of this morning, we will welcome in 163 new members to our church. So praise God. If you are one of our new members that we're recognizing this morning, you were part of the most recent Uh, one of the last two membership classes. Would you stand for just a moment? We just want to pray for you and welcome you. Welcome in, friends. Keep standing. We love you. We're grateful for you. If you would, uh, those of you who are seated, would you just reach a hand out towards them as we pray? Uh, Reach out a, a sanitized hand towards them, and we'll pray for them. Father, we love you, and we thank you for these, our brothers and sisters. We thank you for these men and women who not only were once lost, but now are found. They once were dead in their sin, but you've made them alive. Uh, they have followed obediently uh, your word in their lives, and, and they are at a place where they are joining a local community of faith. They've joined a local family of believers so that we together would experience your grace together. We would share burdens together. We would, uh, Father, be shaped, as we're going to see in your word this morning, be shaped at the very core of who we are together. And so I thank you that they are us and we are them and that we, God, are a much more beautiful place with them than we would be without them. We love you. Amen. Thank you, friends. Matthew five twenty one through 26. Uh, last Sunday was a really interesting Sunday for our church. Uh, The previous Wednesday, our building had flooded because of the cold, and so we we didn't have in-person services. Most of you, if you did participate, it was online. We had a a small group of people here in person just because I didn't want to preached to an empty room again, and so uh, we had that. But we had machines all over the place, and and the carpet was still drying, and the whole building pretty much smelled like an old fridge, and so it wasn't great. Uh, But what we did was we had church, and if you paid attention at all, you knew that we moved on in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And and what we we moved into were four verses that are incredibly significant for understanding Jesus, understanding who He is, and, and then really understanding what He's going to go on to say For the rest of the sermon. So, just to kind of orient, we are in verse 21 this morning uh, of chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is. Uh, three whole chapters, it goes all the way, uh, 30 verses or so into chapter seven. What Jesus said that we covered last week is what the rest of all of that is about. The rest of chapter five, all of chapter six, all of chapter seven. So I need to recap a bit. If you missed it and you get a chance, catch it in a- online. We need to hear all of it to understand what Jesus does. But two major movements is Jesus, one said that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The way he says it is, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets the torah and the torah story and the prophets i didn't come to abolish i came to fulfill and what that means is that jesus is the climactic point of all that god has done and all that god is doing which is wonderful news for us friends it's wonderful news in that um, what Jesus has done is he's shown that all the characters from Abraham to Isaac to Esther to Daniel to Moses to Rahab, all the characters prefigure him. All the sacrifices, point is, once and for all sacrifice, all the laws that define the life that you and I are supposed to live, all those are embodied in Jesus. He sums all that up by saying, I have not come to abolish, I've come to fulfill. And the reason that's wonderful news is that means that all that we need, we can find in Jesus. All that we need, we have in Him. Like... Uh, The forgiveness the Old Testament pointed to we have in Jesus. The flourishing life that it described is fulfilled for us in Jesus. Mostly the God that we were made to know and love is available to us in and through Jesus who on the cross cried out in victory it is finished, who in his resurrection walked over death, who in his ascension ascended to the right hand of the Father and rules and reigns over all things and who in his return will one day come to make all things right. The point of all that is to say that Jesus is the point of all things. It's the point of all things. It's all about him. First, he said, I fulfilled all. The second thing he said, which is where the sermon goes from here, is he calls his followers to a greater righteousness. The way he said it is, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of God. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous people around by, by any cultural standard. And so he That kind of verse is a kind of verse that uh, is so shocking, it's so intimidating, that it's really easy to miss what Jesus is saying. So you can miss it on, on one of two sides, and this is all what we said last week. You can miss it if you hear Jesus saying you need to earn your salvation. If you hear Jesus saying you have to be better than most people to be loved by God, you've missed it. He has just said he fulfills the Old Testament requirements and covenants and all that. It means that we get in. We have relationship with God, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus does for us. And so the way that Paul says it is, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we are not trying to earn God's love. We are working from God's love, and we have God's love because we're secure in Christ, the, the life that he lived. But we also... Hear me. We also miss Jesus if we hear something like, unless your righteousness surpasses, and we say, oh, the only thing he means is he just wants to show us how bad we are so that we know that we need a savior. That misses it. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Is that all that Jesus is saying? No, it's not all that Jesus is saying. What the rest of the sermon is about is Jesus describing a life of righteousness that he actually believes is possible in him. A life of righteousness he actually believes is is possible with him. And so what we'll see over and over again is it's a greater righteousness, not because it's better, like better at keeping rules or better behavior. It's it's greater, not because it's better, but because it's deeper. Let me give you a definition for righteousness that comes from one of my favorite uh, voices on the Sermon on the Mount, a guy named Jonathan Pennington, who wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount. He defines righteousness this way. Righteousness is a whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Righteousness, the kind of righteousness Jesus describes in the rest of the sermon, is a whole person behavior that accords with God's nature and God's will and God's coming kingdom. And here's what we mean by whole. Just mean an inside out kind of living. A kind of living where we love God and love others, where there's a depth to us, where there's a union of heart and of action. So let me reframe it a bit and then we'll get into where we're going. Um, why, look right at me, why are you here? Why are you here? What does God want from you? Uh, what is it that you want from God? What is it that he's maybe trying to do in your life? What did Jesus come to do? Where is it that Jesus wants to take you? You know, there's a lot of wrong answers to those questions. Um, th- there's a way to answer those questions that reveal that we don't actually want God We just want to use God to get things in life that make us feel like we are God, and that's a wrong answer. There's a lot of good answers to those questions. Why are you here? What do you want from God? What does God want from you? Let me submit to you, my friend, one of the most essential answers to that question is that what God wants is to make you whole. God wants to to make you a deeply righteous person. That's what he wants. Jesus is inviting you down a path of of life, a way of living that's paved with grace and paved with love, but is forming in you deep righteousness where we love God and we love others, not from cold compulsion or cold obedience, but from a heart that's mirroring God's, a heart that's matching God's. Richard Foster, he's one of my favorite uh, voices on the spiritual disciplines, and he writes this in one of his books. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of gifted people. I'd add to that the desperate need today is not for a greater number of famous people. The desperate need today is for a greater number of deep people. People who have a substance to their life, a righteousness that goes all the way to the core of who they are. And so my brother, my sister, whether I know you and your story or whether you're here for the very first time and we don't know each other at all, I want you to know that through Jesus, God wants to make you a whole person who's becoming deeply righteous. That's what he wants. That's one of the greatest hopes he has for your life. And so my hope, if that's true, because that's true, is that that's always where we're headed as a church. Uh, that where we're always headed as a church is is together being formed into the image of Jesus as whole people as deep people so i delight in being able to stand up here and say 29 baptisms praise god i delight in being able to stand and say 160 something new members praise god but the most important question i ask the most important question our elders ask is not about the numbers are we growing but about the hearts are we changing are we, are we becoming more deep? I have zero interest in playing some sort of religious game where we uh, offer religious experiences to religious people and we teach people right answers, but we're not becoming better humans. Where we offer religious programs, but we're not becoming deeper people. We're not becoming more like Jesus. No, the great mission, the great invitation from our Savior, according to his own words, is be loved by me, I've fulfilled it all, and then follow me down a path where you are changed at the very core of who you are. You become deep and whole, and you reflect the holiness of God. That's what the rest of the sermon is about. Do you want that? Is that what you want in your life? I ask that, I pause for that, because there's a myriad of different reasons that you could be here. It, it's oftentimes, sometimes we come into church and it's this one kind of symptom we really just want God to take away, and that, that's all that we're expecting, and what Jesus wants is, is so much more than just to take all your symptoms away. He wants to change your very heart, and that's what we'll see. Matthew 5, 21 through 26, he says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, pay attention to that rhythm. You have heard, but I say. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. Go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. And truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. If you were to keep reading to the end of chapter five, what you would see is that Jesus talks about six things in the rest of this chapter. He talks about anger, uh, he talks about uh, Lust and divorce, which we'll talk about next week. Don't miss it. Right? Um, He'll talk about retaliate or keeping your word. After that, he'll talk about I am. I am hopeful for next week. I mean that. I wasn't. Anyway, so um, he talks about retaliation or, or justice, and he also talks about loving your enemies. Now, now, if you have any sort of familiarity with the Bible or Jesus's commands, are those six things the only things that he cares about? No. Are those six things the only things that he could talk about? No. So what he's doing is he's offering some very specific instruction, but he's using those six examples to teach us a way of living. So those six examples are really the backdrop, but the rhythm, the thing he repeats, the path is the foreground. It's the focal point. And so here's what that path is. You will change deeply. You and I will be made into whole people as we do two things, as we follow the movement of God's voice uncovering our hearts. That's the rhythm. That's what you see over and again in all six of these things. It's God's voice uncovering our hearts. Here's what I mean by God's voice. Over and again throughout the chapter, Jesus says, you've heard, but I say to you. He is speaking to a culture that is an oral culture, not a written culture. What they believed, they believed because they heard it. We get our information mostly through reading or social media or something like that. Uh, They got their information by hearing a teacher teach them. And so what they believe, they believe because it's something that they heard. And so Jesus is saying, of all the voices out there, listen to mine. The starting place of deep change in your life is by submitting your life to the voice of Jesus, to the voice of God. I've got a two-year-old, she'll turn three in April, and a couple months ago she started saying something that caught me off guard. Uh, I would tell her not to do something, or, and usually if I said, hey, you know, Ayla, don't throw things, she would just scream no at me and run out of the room. But she started saying something else about a month ago. I would tell her, don't do something. And instead of saying no, she would say, I have to. (laughs) So it'd go like this, Ayla, don't color on the counter. I have to. And she says it just like that, just real like defeated, right? Uh, Ayla, don't throw rocks at your brother. I I have to. Ayla, where did you get that candy? Don't eat that. I have to. The scariest, Ayla... Baby, we're in the store. Please, please stop taking your clothes off. I have to. <laughs> and so there's this voice that she's supposed to listen to, and it's mine. It's Dad's voice, right? And, and I say, don't do that. And then there's this desire, this other voice, this like demonic voice that is saying, do the opposite of what Dad's, you have to do this thing, right? Now, I'm not perfect, and, and my voice is not always Uh, been a, a perfect one in her life, but my voice is for her good, right? I'm trying to lead her to life and don't go in the street, right? Don't hurt people. Stay clothed in public, right? Those are lifelong lessons that she needs to remember. And she is caught in those moments between my voice and some other internal thing that says do the opposite. And that's the story of humanity, You know this, if you're in our Proverbs class right now, either men or women, the story of humanity is that there is a voice in Genesis 2, God as father speaking to his children saying, listen to me, I want to lead you into life. My voice is for your good. If you obey my commands, it will lead to flourishing, right? And then in chapter 3, another voice enters the story. Another voice slithers into the story and says, don't trust God. Don't obey God. You can be like God, right? And what they do is they listen to the serpent. They submit to his voice and they give their ear to another. And look right at me, my friend. Whoever has your ear controls your life. Whoever has your ear controls your life. It's why the low point of the Old Testament is the book of Judges and the refrain throughout that book is they did what was right in their own eyes. Didn't listen to God. They had plugged their ears to God's voice. So humanity has been perpetually caught in between the voice of God and other voices. And the decision you make every single day of your life, the decision you make is whose voice to submit to. Whose voice to surrender to. So, Jesus in the sermon, when he says, You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, he's acknowledging. So, many times he'll quote the Old Testament, but what he's also doing is at the same time he's going after the voices that have misrepresented the Old Testament. There are other voices out there. His audience knew of other religious leaders, but the point stands for us. We are all listening to someone, we're all listening to something. Everyone is being discipled. Dis- Everyone's a follower. Everyone's a follower. Everyone has submitted their ear to some voice. Maybe you'd consider this. Could it be that some of us have been a Christian for a really long time? And in that time, we're not changing. In that time, we're not growing. In that time, we're not becoming whole people. Could it be it's because we're listening to a voice that doesn't have that power? Listening to a voice that can't make us more than we are, can't take us any further than we are. The challenge of our day you know, it better said, the myth of our day, better said, the lie of our day is that because we have access to endless amounts of information and access to all kinds of voices and access to all kinds of answers, the lie is we actually have all we need to be the, our own authoritative voice in our life. If I don't know it, I can figure it out. And if I need help, I can go and and, and access. And and it's why we hate being told what to do. It's why we hate being told how to think. It's why we hate being told how to live. And it doesn't mean that, by and large, we don't want to learn. We'll go and we'll seek information. We will obsess over information. We will be this constant, uh, you know, consumers of information. But how that works for most of us is we just seek out the information and the answers that already confirm our presuppositions and already confirm our own biases. We listen to voices that will affirm me or excuse me, not voices. Voices that will challenge or change me or confront me, which is just another way to do what is right in my own eyes. Brett McCracken, who runs Gospel Coalition, who has an incredible last name, Brett McCracken, he puts it like this in a book he just released. "Our world has more and more information, but less and less wisdom. More data, less clarity, more stimulation, less synthesis, more distraction less stillness, more pontificating, less pondering, more opinion, less research, more speaking, less listening, more to look at, less to see, more amusement, less joy. There is more, but we are less. And we all feel it. How can that be? Like, why is that the way? To have all this entertainment... To have all this information, to have all this access, and not only to not be better off for it, but to actually be worse off because of it. You know why? Because we were not made to be the self-determiners of what's best for us. We were not made to be the authoritative voice in our own life. We are not God. Our voice is not his. That's why Psalm 1 says there's two ways to live. There are those who walk their own path, and they are like dust in the wilderness, blown around by the wind. There's no substance to them at all. But the righteous the one who listens to God. They're not a a dust blown in the wilderness. They're like a tree planted by streams of water who bears fruit even in drought, who continues to thrive even in heat. They have a depth to them. My beloved, can I say it to you a different way? If Jesus' words do not rule your life, if Jesus' words do not have any weight in your life, you will never become more than who you already are. If his, words don't have, if his words can't confront, if his words are not the words that you bow your knee under, then you will never become more than who you already are. You'll never have more peace than you already do. There will never be more growth than there is now, at least not the kind of growth that matters. You will be divided, you won't be whole, you'll be shallow, you won't be deep. And if you are okay with that, then not only have you missed Jesus, but you're wrong about you. You've missed yourself, you've missed your need. And Jesus, he's not harsh He's not cold, he's not a dictator. Jesus knows you and he loves you and so he says, you have heard but I say. It's his invitation to come back and live under the voice of God. It's his invitation for you to come and surrender under the voice that you are always meant to listen to. Okay, so it's God's voice. That's the first step. That's the first part of this dance that he invites us into and then God's voice uncovering our heart. Look at this. He says, you have heard, don't murder. But I say, let's talk about your anger. So it's God's voice that brings change. And then where that change happens is God's voice gets below the surface. God's voice will go below the problems above the surface. And he wants to talk about the problems at the source. So he starts with murder and he says, you know what? Murder is the worst. Everyone knows that, right? Don't murder. But where does murder come from? How does, how does murder happen, right? It first exists in the heart as unrighteous anger and it comes out of the mouth as insults. The insult that Jesus actually mentions is the insult of calling someone empty to say that their life doesn't matter. And so before you murder with your hands, you can murder with your mouth. And before you murder with your mouth, you murder in your heart. There's a murder that happens underneath the surface. And which one does Jesus wanna start with? The one underneath the surface. He goes past the problems on the surface and goes to the problems of the source. And we wish he wouldn't. (laughs) We wish he wouldn't. What we want him to do is want him to stay above the surface because if you're Jesus' audience, most of his audience had never murdered anybody. Most of mine probably hasn't either. And so when he says don't murder, most of us raise our hand and are like innocent. Got it. I feel really good about that command. But he doesn't stay there. He goes underneath that. He levels the field. Anyone who's been unrighteously angry in their heart, anyone who is angry and it never turns to murder, it's only emotion or it's only words. And that's where he wants to start. So the the building flooded a week and a half ago on a Wednesday. Adam Hawkins and I, Adam just had this God-given, just impulse to say, we got to go check on the church because I think something's wrong. And so uh, we came up here and we walked into the building. It was Wednesday around 1030 and we walked into three inches of water covering this whole wing. If you're new here, have no idea. The reason this is like this is because our building flooded. And so we walked in three inches of water over this whole wing of the church. There was a ton of water on our, on our floors. And so the first thing we did was we tried to find the source, right? Where is all this water coming from and so we sloshed around for a minute and then came down this hallway right here and discovered that behind the wall right inside our entryway uh, there was a pipe that had busted and it was a pipe that was connected to our fire system our sprinkler system and those uh, pipes are pressurized by the city it's a city system and my understanding is they're pressurized the same way a fire hydrant would be pressurized if that's not true I don't care it there's a lot of (laughs) there's a lot of water a lot of water coming out real fast And so from that one break, we couldn't see it. All we could see was water that was pouring out of the wall. It it was so powerful that it had pushed all the sheetrock on that area off of the wall. And from that one broken pipe behind the wall, all of the water that was on the floor came from that one spot. So what did we need to do? We needed to turn the water off. Huge problem. We had no idea how to do that. We ran around to our water meters that were covered in like a foot of snow by then And uh, we turned all the water off in the water meters. That didn't shut the water off. Apparently, this water, this system could only be shut off by a valve that was inside the building. We didn't know that. We finally called the fire department. They said they're on their way. And so while they, we didn't know how long that would take because everyone had some sort of thing going on like that. And so while we waited, what we needed was we needed the water behind the wall to stop flooding. But while we waited, what we did was we felt like we needed to do something, right? And so right outside that door, Adam Hawkins and I, we grabbed two push brooms and we just tried to push as much water out the door as we could. So we tried to push as much water on the floor out the door while the water is still pouring out of the walls. And guess what that did? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. It was, it was as meaningless as it sounds, right? The best we could do was just try to manage the water on the floor when what was needed was to stop the water behind the wall. That's what was needed. And, and so until the water behind the wall stopped, it's just two guys with zero plumbing skill, or any significant man skills to speak of, just trying to push water out the door with a broom, right? And it was so empty. Would you hear something? So many of us are content to do just that when it comes to the problems in our life. So many of us are content to try to manage the symptoms of a problem instead of addressing the source of the problem because we want is we want to believe all our problems are outside the wall. We wanna believe all of our problems are above the surface because when my problems are above the surface, what I can do then is I can shift blame onto other people. Uh, I can make it about my circumstances and that makes me feel safe and that makes me feel justified. But if it's below the surface, if it's beneath the walls in my life, you know what that means? It means I'm responsible. And that's really scary. Uh, And that requires humility. And what is easier is it's easier to just try and manage the fallout of what's broken instead of saying, maybe I need to first look at my heart. And so what many of us will do is we will stand in the waters of a failing marriage, trying to bail out as much as we can and paying no attention to the breaks in our hearts. And if that's you, I'm not saying it's all your fault. I understand it's complicated. But I am saying if that's you, that there is something in you God wants to deal with. And the reality is most of us would rather fight our spouse than fight our sin. Or we'll stand in the waters of our anxiety and worry and try to push everything out of our lives that makes us feel frail our anxiety and worry and try to push everything out of our life that makes us threatened or insecure and never consider that maybe it's not the things around me that make me afraid, but it's something within me that needs to learn to trust God. That's what it means, my friend, to be a divided person. Divided people, shallow people never come to grips with how the sin inside of us. We don't have eyes to follow the water on the floor to the water in the wall or to the condition of our heart. And so we never come to grips with how the sin inside of us contributes to the brokenness around us. And I don't know, I, I have been in ministry, I, I, I know I look 12. I have been in ministry a really long time and nothing, nothing provokes people Nothing provokes people, myself included, like when we believe a problem is above the surface. It's just conflict up here. It's just addiction up here. It's just worry up here. And then God or a preacher or a friend or a home group will try to get us to get our eyes off of the water on the floor and move behind the wall and the condition of the heart that's causing all the problem. And we don't want that. That's where Jesus wants to start. The very place Jesus wants to begin. Is the problem at the source, not the problems above the surface. Because, don't miss this, because he cares, because he loves you. Like a doctor who won't just give medicine for your symptoms, but will search for the sickness behind the symptoms, because he doesn't just care that your symptoms are managed, he cares that you're healed. He doesn't want you to be sick anymore. That's God. Jesus wants you to be made whole. You know what that means? Don't, don't just hear me. I, I, would, I, would, I would cringe if this happened. Don't just hear me saying all that God cares about is the problems of your heart. God cares about your heart. God cares about the pain in your heart. God cares about the doubt in your heart. God cares about the ways that your heart is wounded and hurting, that you wouldn't ask for things that were done to you. He cares about the past that you hold on to in your heart. It's why in the book of John, one of Jesus's favorite questions to ask is what do you want? Because he's trying to draw people out to understand and to see their hearts. And also what it means is he cares to walk with us, to get behind the walls in our life from the problems above to the problems within. That's what he cares about. Now, And that goes as deep as it can. Let's reset just a bit. God wants to make you a whole person. There's a path that Jesus introduces us to, a path of depth, a path of wholeness. That is by submitting to the voice of Jesus. And that voice is aimed at uncovering our heart, dealing with the issues of our heart. And then look how deep it goes. He starts talking about anger. What is anger? It's what you feel. It's an emotion. It's more than that. It's more complicated than that. It's not less than that. So when Jesus starts talking, when he mentions the word anger, where does that situate him? He is in the emotional climate of our heart. Not just the emotional climate of our heart, but he's in the the negative emotions, the the dark emotions, the the difficult emotions. There's nothing. There's nothing more personal in your life than that, than the, than the, the things that you feel that are painful and hurtful to feel. And what Jesus is saying, this is something that maybe we don't talk about a lot, but we should because God cares a whole lot. Being deeply righteous, you know what it means? means being emotionally healthy. Jesus followers are to be righteous even in how they handle their emotion. Emotionally healthy people don't murder people. You <laughs> could say it like that. Emotionally healthy people also don't slander people, they don't insult people, they don't rage about things going wrong. Emotionally healthy people what they do is they know where to go with and what to do with their emotions. Now don't hear me saying that what it means to be emotionally healthy is it means to always be happy. That's the cultural misunderstanding is to always have good vibes or whatever that means, right? Emotionally healthy people are, are, are not always happy and never sad, always joy and never anger. There are plenty of times in life where the most righteous thing to be is angry. Plenty of times in life. Emotional health is about our emotion mirroring God's heart in any given circumstance. Uh, Jesus has in mind what he talks about as unrighteous anger. And so he's holding up a kind of emotion that if not kept in check could lead to murder and that God cares about. So unrighteous anger is like the slow burn of bitterness towards someone who's wronged you. Unrighteous anger is like the quiet rage that boils in the heart towards someone who has what you don't have or someone who has all that you want or just the rage that we've seen in the last 12 months. Even from Christians, right, who in the face of controversy or in the face of losing control, they have left God's tools of peace. They've left the tools of peace like gentle answers and wise words and patient listening, and they have picked up the weapons of the world, weapons like slander and insult and rage and lies. And those are not deep people, People who don't know what to do with unrighteous anger. Matthew Henry, he's a a pastor, an author. He says it like this. Anger is like fire. It makes a helpful servant, but a devastating master. And the age we live in is an age where many have bowed to their anger. They're ruled by it. It's a master that's destroying them and anyone that's around them. And God cares that your anger, God cares that any emotion never masters us because we already have a master. We already have a Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, in Genesis 4, you have got this brother, Cain, who's about to murder his brother Abel, and God comes and appeals to him. This is how long God has cared about this. He appeals to him, and he asks him this question, why are you angry? Why are you angry? So you see where where God enters into Cain, enters into his struggle? He enters in not after he's murdered and saying, why did you do that? He enters in as the pipe is beginning to break behind the wall and says, why are you angry? He cares, and he says, listen, there is a murder in your heart, and if you don't bring it to me, you will take it out on your brother, and it will ruin both of you. So for God in Genesis four, all the way to Jesus in Matthew five, the work that God wants to do is his voice aimed at our heart, including getting into the emotional climate of our heart, which look, that says something different. God has a different take on emotional health than the one that we experience around us. There's a couple of common misconceptions about what to do as emotional people. One is we ignore them, right? Just act like they don't exist. Just keep your head down and trudge through life and you'll be fine. The other, the most common, is to be ruled by them, to let let your emotion be the authoritative voice in your life. And we're sold that that's what freedom is, but in reality, that's being a slave to your impulses. The third is to be honest about your emotion, which is true to a degree. But oftentimes the cultural messaging around that is it stops at honesty and God doesn't just stop at honesty. Honesty is not enough. The honesty is supposed to move to accountability for what that honesty reveals about our hearts. But the way that we have come to wear it like a badge of honor is we'll say things about our emotion. We'll say things about who we are as well. I'm just being real or I'm just telling you how I feel and we'll wear that like a badge of honor like we've done something. You know, I call it like it is, right? And if all that means, please hear me, if all that means is I say what I think and I say what I feel and then I think because I didn't lie, I'm not responsible for what my honesty revealed, that is simply another way to be fake. That is simply another way to hide because underneath I'm just being real. Underneath, I'm just being honest, underneath that are beliefs about God and life and expectations and doubts and wounds and sin and idolatry. Under, those are, those emotions are, uh, one Co- Old Testament theologian said it this way. He wrote a commentary on the Psalms. He said, every emotion is a theological statement. Every emotion is a window into what's actually going on in the deepest parts of what you believe and who you are and what you want, and it's not simply being honest about it and then thinking that the work is done. That's like saying my arm is broken and expecting just because I said it out loud, I don't need to now go get a cast. Ugh, I'm just so stressed, and a lot of us are right now. I'm so angry. I- I- I'm so worried. I'm so discouraged. I'm so filled with bitterness. okay. Praise God, you're honest. Now follow the water on the floor to the water in the wall. Follow the problem at the surface to the problem at the source. That's where God wants to meet you, friend. That's where he wants to meet you. That's where he wants that change to take place. And yes, there are circumstances tied up in all that, especially painful circumstances, difficult circumstances, but you know this, I know this. God uses those circumstances in our life often to shape us by putting us in situations that expose us or at least draw our eyes to the deeper realities within us that God wants to heal and minister to. It would delight my heart if in this moment at least where we've gotten together is to see how deeply Jesus wants to bring change in our lives. His voice aimed at our hearts, shaping even how we respond to what we feel. That's a deep kind of change that makes us whole people. One of the things that I think about every week is how to synthesize everything we've said in the last 37 minutes. I want to end with something that ties everything together. Here's my attempt at that. What would it sound like to miss Jesus this morning? That's my question. What would it sound like to miss him? What would it sound like to, to have not submitted your life to what he's revealed in his word this morning? I think it would sound like this, that Jesus is preaching and you're on the mountain with Jesus or maybe you're at coffee with Jesus and you, you, you hear him preach and he says, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. And then you jump in, you interrupt him and you say, Jesus, let me stop you. I've never murdered. So I'm good. I'm good. And then you go on to say, I mean, you know, I've used my words to cut people and to harm people and to wound people and to slander people, but that's actually just because I'm an eight on the Enneagram. And so that's kind of your fault, God. That's how you made me, right? Uh, and yes, I am angry. Yes, I'm bitter. You know, there's times when, when at the very thought of a name or the thought of a face, uh, I am just consumed by a bit of anger. But that's just how I feel. Like, those are just my emotions. And, you know, I read in a blog somewhere that it's really normal to feel those things. It's actually good for you to feel those things. So, Jesus, it's all water on the floor. There's nothing coming out of the wall. (laughs) That is how to miss Jesus this morning. And why I think there are so many where that is the precise way that so many Christians live the entirety of their Christian life addressing their problems. As soon as something comes up, I find an out. As soon as something gets uncomfortable, I find an excuse. As as soon as there's any mention of something broken behind the walls of our heart, we just work harder to push water out the door. What would it sound like to obey Jesus this morning? What would it sound like to say, I am... I am saying yes, Jesus, to your invitation to become a deep person. You know what it would sound like? It would sound like the story that Jesus tells, the command that he tells. He answers that question in verse 23 and 24. Anyone who said, Jesus, I wanna obey you, what do I do? He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you get to the altar and you remember someone has something against you, go home and pursue peace. Jesus is in Galilee. Uh, The altar is in Jerusalem. It's a three-day journey. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you make the trip, If you walk the three days, however many miles, and you wait in line, you pay the temple tax, you carry your sacrifice all the way to the place of the altar, and you get there to offer your worship to God, and then something happens. God brings a name to mind. He brings a face to mind. He brings the last conversation that went really poorly to mind, and he says, I want you to make your worship today going home and pursuing peace. Can you imagine the the emotion, right? Right? that it's like, oh gosh, you know, but they did this or I don't know what to say. It's three days away. I came here to worship you, God. This doesn't have anything to do with them. I don't have to walk all the way back just to have that conversation. But Jesus brings up that exact scenario because the person whose heart is deeply changing, the person who is becoming whole, leaves the gift, walks home and pursues peace. Well, what if the other person doesn't want it? What if you're the only one who wants to reconcile? We don't know. Jesus doesn't say, it's a great question, these situations are complicated, but that doesn't seem to be his point here. He says, my voice aimed at your heart, aimed at the anger in your heart, and then he offers a story as an example of someone who submits to God's voice, is honest about their own heart, and even in what feels like an unreasonable ask, is willing as a whole person to respond when God speaks. And so he doesn't address whether the reconciliation works, He doesn't address whether it's going to go well. He doesn't address whether it's going to work. He addresses whether reconciliation is what you want because that's what God wants. He addresses in that moment, is the condition of your heart so postured that you are willing to make your worship to God pursuing peace in a relationship where there's conflict? I wonder, friend, have you ever sat down to read your Bible and all you can think about is someone that you're at odds with? Have you ever walked in here and maybe during one of our songs, a face comes to mind, you ever try to pray in your car with your eyes open and and you just keep going back to a conversation that went poorly or a relationship that's broken and and, and it's in those, it's in those moments in your life. Like what if that's the nudge of God? Not not saying I want to send you into this really complicated thing to leave you there, but what if that's the nudge of God saying I want to make you whole? I want to take this righteousness that I have for you and drive it deep into your life because what happens is in those places and it's especially in the complicated places of our life that the work God wants to do is the work of discovering are our, our hearts submitted to him. Is his voice the one that rules our life? Are we willing to offer our obedience to him and trust him with the results? Because what we'll either do in a moment like that is we will either listen to his voice or we will walk away. Only two options. But God, I heard... But God, I think. But God, I read. God, my opinion is. And Jesus says, listen to me. Listen to me. But God, I'm angry. But God, I'm hurt. But God, they did this. God, there's bitterness. And Jesus says, okay, I hear you and I care. Are you willing to start by following the water to the wall? Are you willing to start by getting underneath the surface, by going to the source? And it's in those very instances in our life that what he has for us is not compounded pain. What he has for us is not sending us into more confusion. What he has for us is an invitation to change, to become different. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Uh, Look, we're 43 minutes in. I've sat in this all week long by myself. And I want, what I want is I would rather listen to other voices. Gosh, if I think about what obedience might even potentially look like for me in this, and just the, I'd rather stay above the surface. I would just rather stay above the surface. Do you know what I know about Jesus? He loves me more than that. He loves me too much to leave me there. Do you know what I know about Jesus? He loves you the same. He loves you too much to leave what's under the surface unaddressed. He loves you too much to leave what's behind the walls broken. He wants to do the work of getting into the deepest places in our life to bring healing and wholeness. And you know what the best news is? He already lived it. He already did. He's a whole, he li- he's the best human to ever live with a pure heart. Always listened to the voice of God and always did it as the most righteous, deeply righteous whole person to ever live. He lived that life in your place and so now all that's left is to respond to the love that he's already given to you. Will we do it? Will we take him at his word? Let the weight of his words drive us deep into this world to make us whole people. Father, we love you and we need you. We need help from you, God. Maybe another way that we could have talked about this, God, is um, we could have talked about how it's just so much easier to pretend. We could have talked about how it's just so much easier to Uh, keep you, God, at arm's length. We could have talked about how it's so much easier, God, to listen to the voices that will simply excuse us. We could have listened to the voices, God, that will simply affirm us. And I pray, God, that what we've learned from your word is not that you're yelling at us. I pray what we've learned is not that you're harsh with us. I pray what we've learned is that you As a good father, you, God, as a great physician, you are surgical in the healing that you bring. And so we're here and we're open and we want to be changed. We want to be made whole. Would you help us? I pray that just one of the outcomes, God, I pray that one of the outcomes, if we're taking you at your word, if we really believe that your voice is the one we submit to, I pray that that amounts to a phone call this afternoon. Maybe that amounts to to leaving now, God, in going to pursue peace. Not because we need more of your love, but because you have so poured your love into our life and what we so desperately want is to become who you want to make us. And what that means is being people of reconciliation. Would you do it, God? Would we take you seriously, Lord God? I thank you that every break that you reveal, you also have the resources to repair. I thank you, God, that there's nothing going on in any of our lives that you don't have answers for. I thank you, God, that there is uh, no need of the heart, no fracture of the soul that you don't know intimately and aren't prepared to walk with us faithfully through. We need you. We love you. Amen.